Ephesians chapter 1. Grab my glasses. So, uh, starting the book tonight, it's pretty exciting. Tonight is going to be an introduction to Ephesians. <clears throat> and, um, you know, just w- led by the Lord week by week what, uh, you know, what Wednesday or Sunday is supposed to look like. But typically what will happen is, um, you know, we'll just see what text from the chapter is just the Lord's heart for our Sunday morning gathering. And then we'll cover the rest of the chapter here at Wednesday night. So uh, it's not some kind of a ploy or tactic to get more people to come. Uh, It's actually how my pastor in Corvallis always went through the word. And um, I just found it's just really been a blessing to go through the text that way. And so um, just we'll see how it goes through Ephesians. Uh, did that in Galatians. And um, did we do that in 2 Corinthians? Was that how we rolled through 2 Corinthians as well? Yeah. So anyways, um, this might be, you know, I know you're here tonight, so it's not like you really need to be encouraged too much. But this might be, you know, just the jumping point. For you in uh, making Wednesday night and a midweek gathering just a regular consistent practice. Not for the sake of being religious by any means. But uh, man, when we read the book of Acts, you know, the early church was not a once a week or once every three months place where people gathered. Um, The language is that they gathered regularly, steadfastly, daily even. And uh, the... Um, literal translation of Acts chapter uh, 2 is that they gave themselves continuously and assiduously to being together, gathering, being in the scriptures, sharing things with one another, communing with one another, and uh, praying with one another. And so we do that in this church through our Sunday morning gathering, which is not the biggest or the best. It's just one of many gatherings that we have. Uh, through our core groups, men and women throughout the week, and uh, Wednesday night gathering, 242 groups, uh, and then um, you know things like th- that we just heard and, and saw yeah, throughout the week. So, uh, man, I just hope that the Lord would even use just this as a jumping point to get you coming more regularly uh, to grow as a disciple. And uh, so, that being said, whoo, man, tonight... my mind is like um, applesauce. Um, (laughs) For three days, we've had a a broken septic pump at our house. And so, you know, uh, bucketing gray water and running over to the Sean and Jamie Vaughn house, you know, to use the shower in the bathroom. And and, uh, finally got that fixed this morning. So I was out there visiting with the CRAP dudes from uh, the plumber and uh, Crooked River Advanced Plumbing. And uh, not trying to be crude. And... uh, but being with them, and it was great being with those guys. They're neat guys. But uh, oh, then, man, total, you guys probably wrote about 46 pages worth of notes just for chapter one alone. And so um, looks like chapter one's going to be broken into about three studies. Um, so tonight's just an intro to get a flavor of what is, what is Ephesus, what is uh, Ephesians. The Ephesians book is 
the wealth of the riches of God upon the believer. Uh, you know, it, it is the, the publisher's clearinghouse, you know, coming and knocking on your door and giving you a giant cardboard cutout check. I mean, that's the type of joy that we ought to have when we read of Ephesians just because it's the blessings of God poured out on um, those that he has chosen. And the first three chapters, uh, you know, show us those blessings and his redemptive work. And then the last four, uh, rather the last three chapters from chapter four on uh, show us, well, what do we do with all of that? What do we do with all the blessing? And uh, we'll get into that more, but um, just want to, man, this is almost a little bit of uh, school of ministry time <laughs> because we're going to be rolling through some fun facts as well as looking at the history that Paul had with um, Ephesus. So Ephesus, and um, let me see if I can control anything here. I'm going to pop pop a couple things here, Josh, so I can stay on track. Uh, Ephesus was one of the greatest cities in Asia Minor. I was just thinking today that uh, as it's located in Turkey, uh, we landed in Turkey in Istanbul uh, two years ago on our Nepal trip. And so uh, some of us weren't too far away from uh, the seven churches in Revelation, one of which is Ephesus there. And uh, it was a Roman capital city. Uh, reading from Hodge, it was situated on a plain near the mouth of the river Keister. It was originally a Greek colony, but became in no small degree orientalized by the influences which surrounded it. Being a free city, it enjoyed under the Romans to a great extent the right of self-government. <clears throat> its constitution was essentially democratic. The town clerk or recorder was an officer in charge of the archives of the city, the promulgator of the laws, and was clothed with great authority. Interesting to think of the town clerk as being, you know, the mayor or even greater, like a governor. It was by his remonstrance, the tumultuous assembly mentioned in Acts 19 was induced to disperse. We'll read about that tonight, the, the riot that happened and how when they were threatened with going before the town clerk, doesn't sound very threatening, but to them it was, uh, it broke up a giant 20, 30,000 person riot. Uh, Ephesus was a wealthy commercial center located on a harbor, and that invited world trade. And a lot of these letters that Paul writes, you know, Corinth, for instance, uh, they're in um, primo locations where uh, commerce was coming in and out, and that meant roads and harbors were there, which meant excellent locations to make disciples and send them out with the gospel. And Ephesus uh, is, is uh, the same in that regard. It was a significant city. It was called the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. One Roman writer called it the light of Asia. It, like Corinth, was an immoral city, a sin city. It was the center for the worship of the goddess, really the sex goddess, Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians. And there at the end of the road and with the uh, pillars is uh, the great temple that uh, was the center for worship of Diana. 
Uh, it was called a mammoth temple, a place to love this goddess. And it's been called one of the wonders, the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was very jealously guarded, as we read about in Acts 19. Uh, Diana, or Artemis, uh, you might want to cover your eyes, because uh, the idol, often made out of silver, was a huge, multi-breasted goddess. As Hodge said, her image was revered in Ephesus. But as you can tell, it wasn't a product of Grecian art. It was this many-breasted, mummy-like figure of oriental symbolism. Now look at how it supposedly came to be. A black stone was found in Ephesus, and it began the legend that Zeus had dropped it, so it was fashioned into a multi-breasted, squatting black idol who was the goddess of fertility, Diana. Now this famous temple was uh, a Greek building in iconic order. It was so celebrated that when it was destroyed about 300 years before Jesus, it was pronounced upon the destroyer immortality that he'd done such a great thing that he would never die. And I haven't heard the news, but I'm guessing that he did. Um, it was this temple that brought unity to the country. It brought character to Ephesus. Uh, one man said, just as the University of Oxford in England gives the city Oxford its diversity, uh, so does the temple in Ephesus really define Ephesus. It boasted what was one of the largest of all open-air theaters, seating some 30,000 people. A couple different views of this uh, giant stadium that we'll read about tonight. And if I forget about it, Josh, you can click on it to get us back there just to see. Um, but we'll read about this stadium in the Bible as it's referenced in Acts 19. But something incredible, and I just want to go back to this picture just because it gives us a, a bit of a view of Ephesus, is that from this city, Everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's what Acts chapter 19, verse 10 says. And I dropped the reference, maybe it's later, but it specifically says how a certain of the major cities that we know of um, heard of the gospel because of Ephesian influence. So uh, that being said, uh, look in your Bibles. At, we're, we're only going through verse 2 tonight. But that's because we're going to look at Acts and see you know, some of the history behind um, Ephesus. So uh, verse 1 of Ephesians 1, you guys want to turn there? I don't have many verses, if any, tonight uh, on the screen. So you'll want to turn to um, Ephesians 1 as well as Acts 18. Oh, it looks like I do have Ephesians 1. <laughs> So uh, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul was, a, uh, was a, a, an apostle, uh, 
basically meaning a missionary or a recognized sent messenger who had, uh, as we understand, been discipled by Jesus. When we refer to the apostles, they had witnessed his earthly ministry. They had witnessed his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Uh, We have the 12 apostles with the death of Judas Iscariot. And then it's believed that uh, Paul actually was the one that truly fulfilled that role of Judas rather than Matthias who took the point by, um, by the casting of lots in Acts chapter 1. Perhaps he was, but uh, one way or another, Paul radically defends his apostleship, especially in 2 Corinthians, uh, in that he is uh, chosen by the Lord. It's by the will of God to be sent out to be an ambassador of Jesus. And he writes to the saints who are in Ephesus. Um, So Ephesus has this history with Paul that as he writes a letter to them, there's deep love in his hearts. And I think we'll get into that by verse uh, 12, that he just begins to share his just deep love and relationship with them. Uh, And so you can flip over to that beginning of that relationship in Acts 18.18. The church in Ephesus was first mentioned when Paul left his friends Aquila and Priscilla there. And so Acts 18.18. So Paul still remained a good while. He took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were there with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but take leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep the coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So kind of cool to look at a map and think of Paul sailing to and from this port city of Ephesus. But he left these dear friends from Rome um, who he'd met in Corinth, uh, Aquila and Priscilla. He left them there to minister to the Ephesian church. And we see that ministry start in Acts 18.24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord excuse me, the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And so one of the first things that I want to do tonight is look at this fellow Apollos. And because I want us to just have just a deep immersion in the church in Ephesus to, as the next, you know, 12 weeks or so go by, I might say six, I might say 12, but uh, no more than that, certainly. Uh, You know, we'll just be able to remember some of the rich history they have with these characters of Paul and Timothy and Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos and and others that we'll see later on in our study. And so we have this guy 
Apollos. First of all, we have an Alexandrian. He's an Egyptian Alexandrian Jew. Now, Alexandria, Egypt, was one of the greatest educational centers of the then known world. It had this large Jewish community, uh, the largest Jewish community outside of Israel. And uh, he has this name of Apollos, a Greek god, reveals that his family, even though they were Jewish, they were highly influenced uh, through the Greek culture that was there in Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt is known for this giant library of almost 700,000 volumes. And so that's where this dude is from. He's a Jew named Apollos, something Greek and, and you know, uh, of a god, uh, of an idolatrous nature. He's very well educated. Nearly everyone from Alexandria was. And we see that he was an eloquent man. Eloquent means skilled in speech, a gifted orator, great communicator. Apollos knew how to capture the attention of his audience with words, and he was good at it. That's great gifting to have, to advance the gospel. We see this would come in handy for the ministry of Apollos later on. We see that he was mighty in the scriptures. Now, he didn't rely on his talents alone, but he had a good handle on the word of God. And that's an example for all of us to follow. Uh, speaking of which, the elders are in the process right now of planning out the next uh, season of Equip School of Ministry. So that's something to just be putting on your radar. It's open to everyone. And we're just looking at it in a way that uh, we want to facilitate it in a way that everyone can be a part of it. And so uh, you can be praying for us and we're starting to plan that out and uh, a time to equip you all to be mighty in the scriptures as well. Matthew Henry spoke of him. He understood the sense and the meaning of the scriptures. He knew how to make use of them and to apply them, how to reason out the scriptures and how to reason strongly. We see in our text here that he was well instructed in the way of the Lord. It seems that he's a believer here. The scriptures were properly applied as he read and studied them. In the Old Testament, the way of the Lord is used to describe spiritual and moral standards of God that he'd given his people to obey. He was fervent in the spirit is the fifth thing about Apollos. In other words, he was on fire. I remember one of my first youth camps that I didn't even get to go to. My sister went to it. It was during that revival I spoke of a couple weeks ago. And these kids went to this camp, and it was called On Fire. And all the kids got a red t-shirt with a flame on it that said On Fire. And they came back, and they were on fire. In fact, they were fervent and zealous for the things of the Lord. And that when I touched them, when they came back, and I rubbed shoulders with them, I rubbed arms with them, that fire spread to me. And I didn't even go to the camp, and I was set on fire for the Lord in that time of the Corvallis church history. That's Apollos as well. He was fervent in spirit. He was a man of blaze. The word fervent means literally when liquids boil or when solids are made to glow. As welders, you've got to love that term. When you crank up the heat on a piece of metal and it begins to boil and pop and even turn into molten metal. That was Apollos. Apollos, this mighty, fervent, zealous man. He taught accurately the ways of God. The scriptures were properly taught. He knew only the baptism of John, which was a water baptism 
and that of repentance. Now it's interesting because we're going to have two Ephesian encounters here where there are individuals who are only partially taught and they need to know more about the full ways of God. And so here we have this great guy, just on fire, fervent, zealous, mighty man of the scriptures, a mighty man of God, but he only knew part of the gospel and the gospel had been fulfilled more and shown more in Jesus and yet he hadn't yet heard of it. He only knew of John's baptism, which was a wonderful baptism, but not the only baptism. Apollos' understanding of the gospel was limited to the message of repentance by John the Baptist. And at best, he probably only knew the most basic elements of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so Aquila and Priscilla are going to take him aside and teach him further. We see he was a bold man in verse 26. He was brave and courageous. He was a teachable man. Oh, and you know what? That is something that goes hand in hand so beautifully with being courageous. I'll never forget being with Kevin as we were working through theology in this church and having different positions and sharing with him, you know, just another position of where he was coming from. And he said this to me, and it, I, man, I want to be like this. I don't know where he got this. Maybe he made this phrase up. And he said, you know what, Rory? I'm always willing to learn and unlearn. And, you know, I hope that we're always teachable like that, that we're always willing to learn and unlearn. I don't mean just like tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine, as he's going to say in Ephesians 4, but I mean on the things that are not so main and not so plain in Scripture, things that we call open-handed issues within the church, that we're able to say, you know what, there's a lot of guys that love Jesus that disagree with me on this, and you know what, I want to be humble enough to maybe learn from them on this. And, 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 you know, pray over these things. And vice versa in the other directions. And here's this dude. He is from, like, the Oxfords and the Westminsters. He's from the, uh, the Moody schools of theology. He's from these, uh, you know, incredible places of education. Alexandria, Egypt. Yet he's a teachable man. And it says that Aquila and Priscilla explain the way of God more accurately. Accurately. <laughs> accurately. Not an Apollos over here. What did they explain? The ways of God. And Paulus didn't say, don't you know who I am? Haven't you read Acts 18? Man, I'm a man mighty in God and in the scriptures and I'm bold. Don't mess with me. William MacDonald said, it's to the credit of this eloquent preacher that he was willing to be taught by a tent maker and his wife. And man, another thing about our teachability, that we don't just look to the guys with the great diplomas on their walls or the million man, women ministries that they might have. Man, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and it is the foolish people of the world that God uses. In fact, he uses those foolish ones to put to shame the wise and the proud. He uses the base things and the things that are not to teach the things that are. And that's exactly what we see happening here in Acts chapter 18. They taught him that Jesus was the fulfillment of all those scriptures that he knew so well. They would have taught Apollos with regard to the doctrinal and experimental elements of the death, burial, resurrection, second coming of Christ. They would have taught him a better understanding with the regeneration and indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And Apollos accepted John's message he acknowledged that Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's Messiah, the lamb that was to be slain for the sins of the world, but his knowledge of Jesus was incomplete. Knowing nothing of the death, nothing of the resurrection of Jesus, 
nothing of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The Life Application Bible Commentary says, John had focused on repentance from sin and on water baptism as an outward sign of commitment and for the preparation of the Messiah's kingdom. But Apollos was probably urging people in a more eloquent fashion to do the same thing John the Baptist was. Apollos needed to get the entire picture, and then he would be a powerful witness for Christ. As he learned from them and heard from them, he then was sent out with their blessings. And that's another thing about our ministries. As we learn in humility, then we're able to be sent out for greater ministry capacities. And so he went into Achaia with a letter of recommendation and he was able to powerfully, profoundly bring scriptural knowledge and application to new brothers and sisters in this, uh, in, across the harbor, really, from, uh, from where, they, where he was taught. We see there in verse 28 that he was a great help, that he was a servant, and he was helping by vigorously refuting the Jews using the scriptures to show that Jesus was the Christ. And you guys, the scriptures are one of our best evangelical tools as well. Know them. Pack your Bible. Man, I got to get better about that. When I was in high school and I had just trillions, obviously a, 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 a exaggeration, thank you, of... Uh, not an Apollos here, uh, you know, of great witnessing opportunities in my school and around me. My Bible was there. It was on my dashboard. It was on my seat in my car. It was, you know, under my seat in my class. Always had my Bible. And now we got smartphones. And it's like, I don't know if you're playing Angry Birds or if you're reading your Bible, you know. And so, man, it, as much as we're able to just have the scriptures with us, it's a great open door and it's a great authority that we can have that men aren't disagreeing with us. They're disagreeing with the holy book and they can take it up with God on that in that case. Um, and so, in Acts 19, the ministry in Ephesus continues. We're going to see in this book, in this chapter, Paul teaching in the synagogue until the Jews reject his message. Then Paul goes and teaches in the school of Tyrannus for two whole years. We're going to see miracles happen in Ephesus, where the Lord uses aprons and handkerchiefs and casting out of demons. One demon freaks out, puts the smack down on seven sons of Sceva, we see those who practice witchcraft then turn to Jesus. And then there's a riot where uh, Demetrius the silversmith uh, incites a mob to, uh, to imprison and capture some disciples. So uh, in Acts 19, 1 through 41, believe it or not. And it happened when Apollos was in Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there's a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, in what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, a New Testament baptism with water. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And so we see the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now the men were about 12 in all. Now let's pause for a second. We see a group of people, 12 disciples, who were pupils or learners. Now some have suggested that the Ephesian disciples were not actually Christians yet. The problem with this is that they are called 
disciples, which almost always refers to Christians, genuine followers of Jesus Christ. However, it must be said that the word disciple does have a broader understanding. Sometimes it's used as disciples of John uh, and, and, and such. However, F.F. Bruce makes the point, when men are called disciples without further qualifications, it seems to mean they were disciples of Jesus. Had Luke meant to indicate that they were disciples of just John the Baptist, he would have said so explicitly. In fact, 23 times in the book of Acts, every time the word disciple is used, it speaks of Christian. It's never used in Acts except to refer to followers of Christ or believers. So my personal humble opinion is that Luke is talking about Christians, disciples who were Christians in a very infantile state. And in verse 2, he asks a very peculiar question to them. Did you receive the Spirit when you, what? Believed. Let's kick it old school and go to the King James Version. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you've believed? Or the Young's literal translation. The Holy Spirit did ye receive having believed? Almost rhymes, you can make a rap about it. And so it appears that these have believed on Jesus and yet have no understanding of the Holy Spirit, let alone have they received him. Maybe it should be phrased, have not received the Holy Spirit, let alone have an understanding of him. Now, that's a question I would ask you here today. Have you received the Spirit since you've become a believer, or since you've believed. Now, we know that the demons believe in Jesus. They do well, and you do well if you believe. But have you put a saving trust in the Lord Jesus? We'll get into it in a minute, but I believe if that's the case, you have received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, if someone were to know you personally, or maybe even just come and meet you for the first day, here you are in a church, it appears you're a part of things, and they looked at your life, would they say, holy schmoly, you know, the spirit is upon you, brother. Or would they say, what's going on? What's going on with you? There's something about your life that just doesn't seem saturated with the person and work of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus says will be like a torrent of living water coming out of you. Not only do I not see torrents, but I don't see drips or drops. And you appear to be as the sponge that's been pulled out of the sink and set to the side, and it's gotten dry and crusty. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you been plunged into the rivers of living water? Now, some people, backgrounds, denominations, have a hard time with this chapter. It can be a tough one. It can be a tricky one. And I teach it in all humility. Because it brings up the phrase. Baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now in one way or another. We should never be scared to refer to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because it's something Jesus spoke of. And if Jesus spoke of it. We can speak of it freely. If you go back to Acts chapter 1 verse 5. 
you read what Jesus says. And let's go back there together. Let's just go back to the book of Acts. He says, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now I want you to maybe take notes or take mental notes because there's three foundational words in the Greek in the New Testament that are used to describe the threefold ministry of the Holy Spirit. The first Greek word is the word para, para, and it means with. The Holy Spirit is with an individual. If you flip back to John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, Jesus says, I will pray the Father and he will give you a helper that he may abide with you forever. Now that's verse 16. Verse 17 is going to be used to show the second relationship of the Holy Spirit upon a Christian. But the first one is para. The Holy Spirit is with. He is with you As he says in John 15, verse 26, when that Holy Spirit helper comes, who I'll send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And so that's something that the Holy Spirit does when he, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, is with you. He testifies of Jesus. How does he testify of Jesus? Well, in the primary state, alongside a non-Christian, He comes alongside of them to testify of Jesus to them and to convict you that you're not all right with God, that your sin separates you from God. He puts an urgency on your heart that you need to be saved and to be forgiven of your sins. He's with you. Secondly, he's in you. It's the Greek word en, E-N. Hard to remember, huh? He's in the believer. So he's with you, and then he's in you. John 14, 17 now said, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, listen to this, for he dwells with you and will be in you, Jesus says. Now this happens when you're born again. When you believe in Jesus and rest in Jesus to be your Savior, when you're saved, Paul says to the Corinthians, don't you know you're the temple of the living God and the Spirit dwells in you time and time again? In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1 and 4, we're going to see that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and that he is a guarantee. Studied for that a lot today, uh, but we're not going to get there till uh, probably next Wednesday night. So, when the Holy Spirit comes into the believer, he gives new life, and a person comes alive spiritually. They're born again. Their eyes and their understanding are open. You can have fellowship with God. You can know him in an intimate way. You have fruits of the Spirit that come off of your life naturally by having the presence of God in you. And then the third relationship of the Spirit to the believer is, is the Greek word epi, E-P-I. And it means upon. 
And Jesus uses this phrase in chapter 1 of Acts, right after he mentioned the baptism with the Holy Spirit, verse 8, where it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the third work of the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, the disciples in the book of Acts chapter 2 had been with Jesus in John chapter 21. When Jesus breathed on them, or rather John 20 verse 22, he breathed on them and he said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now, I have a hard time believing that when Jesus looked at someone and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit, that they did not receive ye the Holy Spirit. But that they received, that Jesus had been glorified, he'd risen from the dead, Holy Spirit had been given to them, and now he says, go and wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit's in you, but as you're waiting for me, he is going to come upon you, and he is going to fill you overflowing with boldness, so that you can go out and tell people about me, to the point of being martyrs, even to the point of death. He'll give you boldness to go in your city, in your region, and throughout the farthermost parts of the world. I always love the analogy of, say, a glass of water that is empty. It's not yet been filled. And next to it is a pitcher. And usually I have the items for show and tell here with me, but I wasn't ready tonight. And we have the water being the picture of the Holy Spirit with the world, para, alongside, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There's an empty vessel over here. And as that person responds to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit drawing him to himself, he receives the gospel, he receives and puts his trust in the sacrificial work of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes in that person. And picture just that water glass being filled to the tippy top. In fact, a little bit of science, probably the two things that I remember in science, was that at the top of water is the seal called the meniscus. And I love learning about that in science because you could drip water drops over the glass so much so that it wouldn't spill. It would kind of be sealed and leave like this dome on the top of the glass. That's a great picture of when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, when he comes in us as Christians. We're given fruits of the Spirit, we have a relationship with Jesus, we have victory over sin, wonderful fruits of, of the Spirit upon our life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all those wonderful things. And yet the Lord says, there's even more that I have for you, and it's for the purpose of boldness to evangelize the world. So wait on me and I'll give you that. And so in Acts chapter 2, they're waiting on the Lord and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And this is where, you know, I kind of ditch the pitcher analogy and just take a garden hose and stick it inside the glass and turn it on. Because it, it speaks of the languages, torrents of living water. And in the Greek tense, the word epi or filling, and throughout the book of Acts, you'll see it put different words. It's filling. They were filled with the Spirit. Weren't they already filled with the Spirit? I mean, your analogy's breaking down here, Rory. They were filled with the Spirit because it's in the Greek continually filled, overflowing with the Spirit. And so when 
someone looks at your life and you have the term disciple, maybe even Calvary Chapel Church member or something like that. And yet if you're honest with yourself and if you maybe even ask your spouse to be honest with you or your core group or your friends, they might say, there's something missing. There's something missing in your life. You know, has the Holy Spirit come upon you when you believe? For the sake of time tonight, we could walk through the book of Acts and we can see that the the Lord is not in a box as to when the Holy Spirit receives such a powerful outflowing of the Spirit. You know, in Acts chapter 2, these are people that had received the Holy Spirit. They go and they wait and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. In Acts chapter 4, the same group of people just are persecuted. They're told, don't open your mouth about Jesus again or we'll put the beat down on you again. They've just been beaten and they gather together as a church to pray and instead of asking for the Lord to remove persecution, they say, God, give us more boldness that we can handle the persecution and keep preaching the gospel. And as they're praying this, it says the whole place was shaken and the Holy Spirit's poured out on them again and they're continually filled again. Which leads me to believe that every time we ask the Lord and times especially when we gather to wait on the Lord and we're in one accord and we're together with the purpose of more of you, Lord, more of you, he gives us more of him. Now the Lord also isn't in a box as to when the Holy Spirit comes upon him in regards to baptism. Because there's times in the book of Acts that we see people believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and at the same time they are continually filled with the Holy Spirit to where they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. And then later on, they're baptized. And then here in our Ephesians 9, in our Acts 19 account with Paul in Ephesus, we see the, the believers, they don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. They've only been baptized a baptism of repentance, John the Baptist style. So they get baptized in water with Paul, blue, and then in a separate encounter, Paul lays hands on them And they receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And they begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. Cornelius' account is also unique. And that the gospel is being preached. There's no evidence of any response to the gospel. Except that the Holy Spirit just comes upon these people that are hearing it. And they begin speaking in tongues. And then later on, they're baptized. And so I just try to never put God in a box as to when he comes upon. When I'm there baptizing people, I'm just praying, hey, The dove anointed Jesus for earthly ministry there when he was being baptized. So Lord, I just ask that you would baptize these people with the Holy Spirit so that they can be bold. Or it might be before, it might be after. Just Lord, more of you. More of you. Look at my life. Am I dry? Have I even received the Holy Spirit? I don't know. But brother, just cry out for more of him tonight. Cry out for more of him for the purpose of boldness. Now I believe that Boldness is the primary reason we are given the baptism with the Holy Spirit. However, it also seems that in those times, and often at those times, gifts are given for the edification of the church. In the case of tongues, the edification of the individual. But not every time. Every time this happens, you don't see a gift of tongues or prophecy taking place. We also see from 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 that not everybody gets tongues. Not everybody gets prophecy. But the Holy Spirit distributes these gifts individually as he wills. 
And so God's not in a box as to when he comes upon us. And God's not into a box as far as what gifts that he gives us. And there's different opinions. Some men that I just, man, I, I would just, you guys can me? I'm moving to Cincinnati and I'm serving with Alistair Begg. Sorry, you know, like this is a guy I love and I would just love to be a part of his ministry. And I guess I, in a way, sort of am. But we disagree on various things. And one of those things is, you know, he doesn't hold the exact position that I have, except for this. The, whole, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he says, whatever it is, I want it. And whenever it happens, I need it. And I can get behind that. Because there are times in our lives that we go through various things, like a basement remodel, you know, or a broken arm, or whatever it might be, and we've just we've been out of fellowship or we've just been struggling or just things are tough and we just aren't abiding and we're dry and we're like the sponge that's set up on the side of the sink. And people look at us and they're like, dude, like, are you even like saved or have you even received the Holy Spirit? Oh, I'm totally a Christian. I'm totally a disciple. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, man, you need the Holy Spirit. And I believe that it's the continual filling of the Holy Spirit. In one way or another, man, whether it's, you might believe it's the moment you get saved, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Hey, praise God. I'm, I can love you. I can give you a big old hug. Okay? You might believe that. But we also know that there's times that we get dry. And the New Testament lingo is continually filled. So fill me afresh, Lord. Fill me afresh. Continually pour yourself out on me. Not so that I can get goosebumps behind my ears and not so I can get crazy and woo and just throw myself on the floor and go into convulsions and vomit holy vomit and crow holy crows and bark holy barks or get gold in my teeth and none of that stuff. So that I can be bold in telling this world about Jesus. Okay? And the gifts that I'm given, I believe we see them in the scriptures. And the purpose of them is not to puff myself up or give me tingly feelings. It is for the edification of the church and to display Christ to the world. The one gift that is given for the edification of myself is the gift of tongues in my private prayer closet. That's the only one that the Lord's given for me, just for me, to be edified. And Paul says, don't forbid speaking in tongues and don't forbid, forbid prophecy, and I wish you all spoke with tongues. It's not that you all do speak with tongues, because he asks the same question, do you all speak with tongues? Do you all prophesy? It's a rhetorical question, and it's no. God's not in a box, right? And so all that being said, as we spend the next so many weeks in Ephesus, think of what this city has experienced. They had a, an Apollos come through town and be sent out from there to radically preach the gospel. They had 12 disciples that were disciples who hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Much like Francis Chan's book about the Holy Spirit called Forgotten God. Man, we as a church have forgotten the third person of the Trinity, who's not a force. He's not, you know, use the Spirit, Luke Skywalker. He's a person. He's got a job. He's been sent. He gets grieved. He moves when we ask for him. Speaking of which, Jesus says, which of you fathers know how to give good gifts? How much more does the Father know how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him? And so I believe that just as we're gathered, we don't got to do anything crazy. I'm like, man, I'm not on worship tonight. I always like to have a couple sets of like, holy fire, burn away, or, you know, whatever. Sing some songs about the Holy Spirit. You don't have to. 
We don't have to do things in a pattern. But here we are, we're gathered in the name of Jesus. We're in one accord. We want to see him exalted across the world. We want to see the church grow and be edified so that we can display him to this world. And wouldn't you say, you know what, Rory, I think if you looked at my life, you'd say you're dry, man. Or you're dry, woman, ma'am. Are you dry? And there's no pattern. Sometimes Paul lays a hand, sometimes he doesn't. Tonight, he does. And maybe we'll end up closing tonight with just a, a laying on of hands, just to follow Paul in this specific text. But in all of that, I would just say with humility, whatever it is, I want it. Whenever it is, I need it. And I can be in unity with people that have different positions on this, and I hope you can as well. And within our own eldership over the years, we've had guys in way different perspectives, but we loved each other and we kept pressing on. And you know what? Over time, the Lord just kept bringing unity to where we can ebb and flow with each other in the way that we understand this. We don't all have it figured out. And so, uh, what a beautiful story there, though, right? And No? Not? Yeah? Right? Can I just say right? I'll answer my own question. Uh, there in Acts chapter 19. Then we have the story continue. Oh, and man, I can't continue the story yet. I've got a couple great quotes here. Listen to what uh, Spurgeon says here. Have ye then received the Spirit since you believed? Beloved, are you now receiving the Spirit? Are you living under His divine influence? Are you filled with His power? Put the question personally. I'm afraid some professors will have to admit that they are hardly they hardly know whether there be any Holy Ghost. And others will have to confess that though they have enjoyed a little of his saving work, yet they do not know much of his ennobling and sanctifying influence. Man, it's my experience that God always wants us to go deeper. We've sipped or we might have been able to drink deeply. We may have drunk deeply where we might be able to wade in. And we might be only wading in where God wants us to plunge in off a high dive all the way in, 30 feet under. More of you, God, as we sing. I want more of you, God. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Spurgeon also said, give a man an electric shock and I warrant you he will know it. But if he has the Holy Ghost, he will know it much more. Is that your life? Oh, you know it. He's in you. He's upon you. He's with you, and he's using you as he's gifted you. One more Spurgeon quote. I believe, brethren, that whenever the church of God declines, one of the most effectual ways of reviving her is to preach much truth concerning the Holy Spirit. After all, he is the very breath of the church. Where the Spirit of God is, there is power. If the Spirit be withdrawn, then the vitality of godliness begins to decline, and we are backbiting. Let us turn to the Spirit of God, crying, Quicken thou me in thy way. If we sorrowfully perceive that any church is growing lukewarm, be it our prayer that the Holy Spirit may work graciously for its revival. Let us return to the Lord. Let us seek again to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and into fire, and we shall yet again behold the wonderful works of the Lord. He sets before us an open door, and if we enter not, we ourselves are to be blamed. 
we're going to do a part two to our introduction next Wednesday night. <laughs> There's just a lot. There's a lot with what happened in Ephesus. 